We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 13. And uh, this, this is the great love chapter, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 13. And we're right at the end of it, though. The conclusion of it, verse 13. And so this is going to be our verse that we focus on for, for the second Sunday of Advent, love. And of course, this uh, for us, the candle represents God's love for us. And as, as we think about the, the order of the events in, in Christmas, you know, you had the people waiting in darkness. You have the people waiting for the Messiah. And that is the hope that we have. And then you have on, on that starry night when the angels show up for the shepherds and Jesus is born, you have the love of God coming down to us. And so that's what today's candle represents. And of course, after Jesus is born, you have great joy and celebration as the shepherds come and witness the birth. And the promise that is given is that He is going to bring peace to the world, to the land. And we have ourselves peace with God through Jesus. And we have, hopefully, we can find peace in our faith in Jesus. And yet, the world is still waiting, isn't it? For the final peace to come. But that is, that is what we are looking at, and that's where we are today, is this focus on Jesus coming as the, as the love of God for us. And so we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit as well. But to begin with, let's go ahead uh, this whole year, and can you believe it, only two, what, three more after today, three more Sundays after today for this year-long focus of Scripture memorization. And, uh, but today we're going to repeat this verse together a few times just to try to start applying it to our memory and hopefully have it trickle down into our hearts as well. So let's say this together uh, a few times. Ready? 1 Corinthians 13.13 But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Okay, so we'll, we'll take away a few of those words and now all we have to do is just fill in the blanks. And uh, we'll, we'll start applying this to our memory. Okay, here we go. 1 Corinthians... 13, 13. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Alright, here we're going to take away a few more of those words. Let's say this again one last time together, shall we? 1 Corinthians 13, 13. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. And if you're worried that I am going too easy on you with these last couple of verses, don't worry. Next week will be a little bit bigger and tougher, okay? But this verse, I think, is a great verse to have in your memory. It's a great verse to have in your heart. To remember that faith, hope, love abide these three. These three things Abide, meaning they, they continue, they dwell, they last. Faith, hope, love, abide these three. But the greatest of these, the greatest of these is love. 
Now, we looked at, at hope last week, and we looked at how uh, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And uh, here we look and we see that faith and hope are in there as well. They're in there again. Faith, hope, love. And, and they work together. They, they go together. That you would have faith and hope and love, they, they go together. They abide. They last. They're constant. And yet, the greatest of these is love. What does it mean that love is greater than faith? Isn't that an interesting thing to consider? We, we talk about faith. We focus on faith. I, 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 I've been open and, and, and shared, you know, especially last week with Hebrews 11.1, you know, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. There were, it's, it has taken me, and I'm still working on it, but it has taken me years struggling with what does that mean for my life? How do I live that out? Because I, I kind of approach God, and, and maybe some of you do too. Maybe you don't have these troubles, but it's very easy to have hope and yet to think God's not going to do it for me. And maybe even to think God will do that for other people, but He wouldn't do that for me. And yet... Scripture tells us that if we, if we truly believe in God, if we have faith, that faith is the assurance that we should live out that hope that we have, believing that God will do what He has said for us, even little old you, or little insignificant you, or little keep-making-mistakes you. That it's not based on who we are, it's not based on our uh, abilities or our performance, that that is what faith is, living and trusting what God has said. And, and our whole focus is believing on Jesus Christ. And yet here Paul comes and he says, love is greater than faith. What does it mean for us? What does it mean for our lives that love is greater than faith? And what we're going to see in this passage, and we are going to go ahead and, and look through the chapter, when he says that love is greater, what he is telling us is that faith is no good without love. You can have faith without love, but it's, it's not going to be any good. In fact, sometimes I think that's the big difference between you know, when James talks about you believe in God, you do well, the demons believe and shudder. You know, they, they, they're terrified by it. I think that's the big difference. The, the demons believe. They know that God exists. But they don't love Him. I think this is the idea that uh, Jesus is getting at when He tells, you know, he tells the parable about the, the sheep on one side and the goats on the other and the sheep have done certain things and the goats haven't done certain things. And when Jesus says to the sheep, just as you did it to the least of these, you did it to Me. And He says to the goats, just as you have not done it to the least of these, you haven't done it to Me. The focus is really on, you don't, you know, to the sheep, you loved other people and so you loved Me. To the goats... You didn't love other people. You weren't loving me. There's a time when Jesus says, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And they'll say, hey, we, we spoke in tongues in your name and we cast out demons in your name and we prophesied in your name. And, and he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. 
That's because faith without love is no good. It's, it's, it's worthless even, as Paul calls it. In, in 1 Corinthians 13, we begin in verse 1. And, and just as we go back to chapter 12, this is in the, the context of spiritual gifts. And, and the Corinthians were clamoring for certain gifts that had you know that looked cool and were were sign gifts and they really wanted these things and and paul says you guys are focused on the wrong thing and so he says uh in in verse 31 i will show you still a more excellent way to live and then he says in verse 1 of chapter 13 if i speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love i've become a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. This was one of those things, and, and you see this still today, where people focus on this uh, outflowing of the Spirit to the point where in, in many churches it's, well, let's not get too much, it, it's faked because we have to participate with the group. And he says, if it's done without love, even if you have this ability, but you don't have love, you're just a noisy gong a clanging symbol then he says in verse 2 if i have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and and we can acknowledge none of us know all mysteries or all knowledge but if you're the, the the just the greatest and if i have all faith notice the all faith if i have all faith so as to remove mountains Apparently, somebody told Paul about Jesus' teaching about if you just had a little bit of faith, you could move a mountain. And he says, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Faith without love is worthless. It's nothing. And he said in verse 3, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. You know, so, so here are the ideas. If, if, if my faith is such and my, my desire, my zeal for the Lord is such that I give all of my possessions away so that I might feed the poor, and if I even surrender my body to be burned, if I give myself up to, the, uh, to those who are against the church and who are persecuting it, and I die a martyr's death, but I do not have love. It, it, it doesn't do me any good. I, sh- I should have just kept my mouth shut. I should have just sat down. So when he says that love is greater than faith, that, that faith, hope, and love, uh, there are these three, but the greatest of these is love. He's saying without love, faith is a horrible thing to have. W- without love... Any kind of spiritual gift you might actually obtain and even to be the most knowledgeable person, it's worthless to you. And I just think, have you, think about the Christian culture in America at large. Not, Not just us as a church, but the whole landscape. And there are a lot of, lot of groups and a lot of churches that just fly under the radar. Nobody thinks about them. But with social media, with TV, there are certain people who get elevated, right? They either uh, have a, a large church or they have a TV program. 
I just want you to, to think about the people that you are most connected with in the world out there, the Christian world, whether it be evangelical or, or some other group. Think about the people that are the big names in, in the church today. They could be musicians, they could be pastors, they could be evangelists. How many of them are operating from love? How many of them, when you hear them preach, if they're pastors, their sermons are spiced and laced with love? How much of it is focused on faith? How much of it is focused on knowledge? How much is it, of it is focused on getting the right answers? I don't know about you, but I think a lot of what we see in the world today is a focus on faith, and faith is a good thing to focus on. And, and it's a focus on knowledge, and knowledge is a great thing to have. Knowledge is something that we all want. We want to grow in our knowledge of the Lord. We want to grow in our knowledge of Scripture. We want to grow as believers. These are all important things. And yet, I can think of many voices on the radio, on podcasts. And I will tell you, I don't think they love me. I don't know that they love their churches. I don't, think, I don't know that they really love the people out there. I don't know that they love strangers sometimes i don't know that i love strangers if we're going to be honest about things you know, my love for a person and this is something i'm working on but you know it the easy thing i can go to is just when i'm driving my love for the people in the other cars around me diminishes greatly if i'm in a hurry or if they're doing something that i don't think they should have done right how often do i feel the holy spirit say you really should have loved that person instead of the other things that you were thinking about them. You know? And I must admit, the few times when a person will go screaming around me on a two yellow, you know, a two yellow line road, and I think, well, they must have had something they needed to go do. I pray God keeps them safe. That doesn't happen very often, but when it does, I feel closer to God. What what is the nature of the church today? What is the spirit of the church and how does the world see us? Are we motivated? Are we driven? Are we acting out of love? Are the primary people that we listen to, do they speak in love? I think one of the, the struggles is that we have elevated faith and, and because the world has taken, hijacked the idea of love, for its own purposes and distorted it. I think a, a, a subconscious thing that the church might have done is to push back away from the love language, right? And that's not the right answer. No, love is greater than faith because if you have faith without love, you're nothing. And, and in fact, as we continue through these verses, if we go to verse 4, Let's find out what love is like, what it's about. He says, love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. I'll tell you what, love is some tough stuff. 
does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. And that's an important thing, I think, that love rejoices in truth. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. And right now in our world, what do we have? We have love that rejoices in unrighteousness. We have love that does not rejoice in the truth. In fact, if you speak the truth, if you dare to believe the truth, well, you're going to get canceled because we have no love for you in the world today. But love does not. Love is able to walk that fine line of not rejoicing in unrighteousness, but rejoicing with the truth. And here is something that I think the church has struggled with the church is all about not rejoicing in unrighteousness. The church works real hard to do that. But does the church always rejoice with the truth? No. Some, church, some truths the church is scared of. Some truths the church doesn't know how to deal with. And so the church tries to suppress that truth. The church doesn't want to hear that truth. You see this when you have people who accuse pastors of improper behavior. And the church is like, but this man baptized my son and he did this for me and he did that for me and he we can't accept that this good stuff could go also with this bad stuff and we don't want to listen to the truth and so we cover it up sometimes and even cover up unrighteousness in our midst the church has a struggle here not to celebrate not to rejoice in unrighteousness not to uh, join in with unrighteousness, not to affirm unrighteousness, and yet to be loving to those who are unrighteous. To rejoice in the truth that people might share with us that is unrighteous. And to rejoice in that truth, to the, the knowledge of truth. We can, we can work with truth. Love works with truth. What we can't work with, though, is a lie. As we continue in verse 7, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love is a serious 80s action movie star. It can go through everything. And it continues to go, no matter how many times it gets shot, no matter how many times it gets cut, no matter how many times it gets blown up, love keeps going bears all things, believes all things, hopes, there's the hopes, believes, there's the faith. Love is the thing that believes. Love is the thing that hopes. Love is the thing that endures. If we have love for a person, we can endure a lot of hardship from them and with them. If we love somebody, we can believe the best about them even when our eyes say no. We can continue to hope for them when we love. But when you don't love somebody, what do you do? You cut them off pretty quick, don't you? When you don't love somebody, you can throw them out fairly easily. When you don't love somebody, you don't believe anything in them. You know they're going to let you down. You know they're going to fail you. But love believes. Love hopes. Love endures. And, and, and as we are looking at you know, 13.13 where we're told faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Well, love is the one that believes. Love is the one that hopes. 
love uh, for believers, we are living our lives in Jesus Christ. Love is the motivation, or is the true believer's motivation in, in how we operate. Love is the motivation for the believing. Love is the motivation for the hoping. If you think about your, your coming to faith in Jesus Christ, even as we talk about coming to faith, part of coming to faith in God and coming to faith in Jesus and, and confessing your sins and believing in Him, some of it is tied up with that you loved God. That you loved Jesus. At some point, you might not have even recognized it. But remember, love uh, rejoices in the truth. At some point, when you say, I've sinned against you, you know, to go to somebody and say, I've sinned against you, there has to be a love for that other person, I think. When we not acknowledge our sin to God and, and that we need Jesus, we're, we're telling Him that He is right and we are wrong. That He is more important than we are. That, that we have erred against Him. And if you actually care about erring against Him, if you actually care about the fact that He is greater than you are, that He is more important than you are, that, that you have erred against Him, He has not erred against you. We have sinned against God. God has not sinned against us. That's an acknowledgement of our love for Him. People who are in rebellion against God today, part of it is they do not love God. They mock God. They laugh at God. They say He does not exist. They do not love God. Love is the true believer's motivation. When, when, when you say to yourself, I need to believe in Him, there's a reason why you believe in Him and not other gods out there. There's a reason why we believe in Scripture and in God's Word instead of other faith practices. Partly, I hope, it's because it's the only one that is absolutely 100% true. And there are so many things wrong with everything else. But also because of love for God. As He has loved us, we return and love Him. But love should be our motivation. I remember uh, sitting with a group of pastors at a luncheon years ago. And, and one of the pastors said, and I think I was just overhearing him talking to two other guys. But he said, if I have a person in my church that comes to me with a complaint against another member, my first question is, do you love him or her? If you're going to come and complain to me about somebody else in the church, my first concern is, do you love them? I don't care what your complaint is. I don't care what they've done to you. I mean, we'll get there, but first, what I really care about is, is are you coming to me in a spirit of love? Are you coming to me because you actually care about that person and you love that person? And, and he said if he's got a, an issue in the church between a couple of members and they can't confess their love for one another, he says, I don't deal with whatever their problem is because their greater problem is they don't love one another. I deal with that first. And if we can get to the point where these two members of the church love one another and can express love for one another, then we can look at dealing with that other issue. And I don't know, but I would wager a guess that chances are once he gets them loving one another, those other problems probably aren't so great. And I remember sitting there thinking, 
that's so obvious. Why have I never thought of it that way? Why have I never done that? You know, people come uh, less and less these days, but in the past, you know, people would come, they'd have a complaint with this other person. Let's see how we can fix this. Never even thinking about the fact that maybe the motivation and the problem was they didn't love one another. Do we love one another? Do we, when we have a question or an issue with something in the church, oh, I don't like that that is happening, oh, I don't like that that is happening, is, is the motivation love? Or is the motivation my desires? Is the motivation my selfishness? Is the motivation my prejudices? What is motivating us? As a look at how the Southern Baptist Convention operates these days, can anybody honestly claim if, if you've paid any attention, you watch it. If you don't, don't worry about it. Don't beat yourself up for not paying attention to the Southern Baptist Convention. But if you do, over the last few years, can, can we honestly say that the motivation of the Southern Baptist Convention is love? I'd say it's about power. It's about control. I think a lot of things that we are seeing in churches today are not not coming from a standpoint of love. They're coming from a standpoint of power and control. And it's not good for us. It's unhealthy. Love should be the true believer's motivation. In fact, Jesus tells us in John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So keeping his commandments is something that people who love him do. If you keep his commandments without love, or if you try to, that's, that's just rank legalism. I'm going to earn it. But no, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. Jesus is putting love as the motivation. And, and why shouldn't he? John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. John tells us that, that it was love that motivated God to send Jesus to die on the cross. Love is God's motivation for acting. Love should be our motivation too. But it goes beyond just motivation. In John chapter 13, he tells us, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He didn't tell us that the world would know that we are his disciples based on our buildings, based on our music, based on our exposition of the scriptures. But no. They will know you're my disciples. They will know that you're the people that are like me. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, is to become like him, to walk in his ways. The world will know that we are his disciples if we have love for one another. Because love is the mark of a believer. And I think this is one of the ways that, that the church really struggles in the world today. Love should be the mark of a believer. Now, I recognize that you know, when they do these, like Barna will do these surveys of millennials, and maybe now they're checking out the Generation Zers, I don't know. But they'll come out with these surveys of the younger generation and say that you know, the younger generation, they look up at at the older church members and they say, oh, they're just a bunch of uh, you know, racists or they're bigots 
or they're hypocrites, or they're this, they're that. They're, you know, the, the younger generation disagrees with the church's stances in many areas uh, on the sanctity of marriage, whether marriage is a man and a woman only. I'm, I'm sure now the younger generation coming up in the schools throughout the, world, the country today uh, firmly believes that there is more than just male and female, although God created them male and female. And so the church has a lot of positions that we take, right? And, and, and we take it in faith based on what God has said. And I'm not saying we scrap any of that. And I recognize you really shouldn't listen to the younger generation for wisdom, right? But, shouldn't the younger generation be able to recognize in the Christians that they love one another? Can we not hold strong viewpoints on righteousness and godliness and marriage and family and be loving? Shouldn't the, the younger generation be able to say, well, I disagree with them in this area. I think they're a bunch of bigots in this area and I think that they're, they're you know, transphobe and they're homophobe in these areas, but they love people. You know? Has the church really worked on the love angle in the last 40 years? I don't know if it goes any farther back than that, but I remember things like the moral majority. That wasn't about loving people. That was about power. That was the idea that we have enough votes. We can run things our way. And it didn't work out. How much greater it would have been if we approached things with an attitude of love? Love should be our motivation, but it also should be the mark of a believer. People should recognize us as being with Jesus because we love one another. And by the way, that love should move out to where others as well. I mean, just think, what did Jesus say was the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, all your mind. What did he say the second one was? Love your neighbor as yourself. These are the two greatest commandments. Notice they had nothing to do with faith, nothing to do with hope, all about love. And then when the, the lawyer said, well, wait a minute, Jesus, who's my neighbor? Just, just who fits into that category? He gave a parable of a good Samaritan where you had a man who was beaten and left for dead and a priest came by and a Levite came by and neither one of them wanted to have anything to do with that man. And then a Samaritan helped him. And at that time, I mean, now, uh, you know, we have uh, anti-Semitism in the world. We have a lot of that going on. But we need to remember, back in the day, the, the Jews were anti-Samaritan. Okay? If we have anti-Semitism, they had it just the same against the Samaritans. A good Jewish person would cross a river, go up on the other bank, and then cross back over that river just to avoid walking through Samaria, which at one point had been part of the nation of Israel. Jesus was a radical who determined to walk through Samaria. And not only walk through, but stop at a well and ask a woman to give him a drink. And do you remember what that woman said? This is the well that our father Jacob gave us. They recognized themselves as descendants from Israel. But they were intermingled with other people. They weren't the true believers. 
And so the Israelites, the Jewish people, they had nothing to do with Samaritans. They hated Samaritans. So now, when Jesus says a Samaritan had pity, you've got to understand, the Samaritan was not an enemy to the Jewish man. But that Jewish man represented an enemy to the Samaritan. That Jewish man was a person who looked down on that Samaritan. That Jewish man was the person who said that the Samaritans were evil and wicked and dogs and dirty. And the Samaritan had compassion on his enemy. And what does Jesus tell us? Love your enemies. So how far does love your neighbor go? Love the person who curses you. Pray for those who hurt you. Feed them. Give them a drink of water if they're thirsty. Love your enemies. The mark of the church should be that we love those who hate us. That we actively, physically, in demonstrable ways, love those who revile us today. That is what he is telling us because that is what Jesus has done. That is what God has done. He has loved us. He has loved the world. The world hates him and he loves it still. This is what he calls us to. A few more verses from the chapter. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, we read, Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. We we prophesy in part, we know in part. If there are gifts of prophecy, they're going to disappear. They're going to go away. There there will come a time, and this is a really hard thing to wrap my brain around, but there will come a time where this book will become obsolete. I will not need this book. There will come a time when I won't need to wonder and ask and struggle with what did God mean. You're just going to be able to turn around and ask Him if you need to ask him ever after after that. These things are going to go away. Prophecy and the proclamation of, of God isn't going to be necessary once Jesus returns. We won't need, as, as he said here, you know, uh, faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. They abide now, but they will not abide forever. Faith, to believe that God is going to do something that I have not seen Him do, I will not need once I am in heaven with Him. I will no longer have the hope for the resurrection after the resurrection. As he says here, we, we, we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Faith is partial. Hope is partial. But once Jesus is here, once we are reunited with Him, will they even exist anymore? Will we need faith? Will we need hope? When there is no more darkness? But there will still be love. 
there will still be love in heaven because there was always love even before the creation of the world. Even before the creation of people to have faith in Jesus or to hope in Him, there was love. This is one of the reasons why the Trinity is such an important reality about who God is. Because God was not solitary. Even though God is one, He is three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as such, as three, God has love within Himself. The Father loved the Son. The Son loves the Father. They operate with the power of the Holy Spirit in their love. And He has loved us. In fact, uh, 1 John 4, verse 8 tells us God is love. It is an attribute of who He is. You, You cannot have true love outside of God. When the world says love is love, no, love is not love. But God is love. God is love. And whatever we think or know or have that is outside of God, it is not true love. And to the extent that we can experience God and know Him better, we will know love better. And so, why is the greatest of these love? Not only because it is the motivation and the mark of a believer, But of these three, only love is eternal. All the more reason why we should elevate in our hearts and our minds our focus on love. Not not to get rid of faith. Not to say, believe what you believe, man, as long as we love one another. No. But in our faith, as we hold on firmly to to the Word of God and the traditions passed down since the beginning of time, Oh, that we would love one another. That we would love God. Because in the end, when Jesus returns, what will remain? Once we know fully and the partial is done away, the one thing that will remain is love. And so as we think about how we live, as we think about how we operate and how we treat people, I just want to encourage you. Where does love stand in your priorities? Where does showing love and treating people with love and reacting with love, where is that in your life today? If you're carried with the waves of the current environment that we live in and the way the Christian world works, it may be that love is kind of down low. We want to hold on to the faith. We want to hold on to the truth. Are we willing to risk that people might misconstrue those things because we actually love them as well? Somehow Jesus managed to love people that hated Him. And He held on to the truth. He proclaimed the truth and He was the truth. But He never hated as He did it. He always honored as He did it. He loved as He did it. I believe that we need to hope in God. I believe firmly that we need to live that hope out in our faith. And and that's something I'm still struggling to learn how to do myself. But above all, we need to love. To love God, to love one another, to love our enemies. 
Because the greatest of those three things, the one that is the most important, the one that if you mess it up, the others don't work, is love. Let's say this together again one last time, shall we, before we close? 1 Corinthians 13, 13. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for the love that You have shown us. That You have sent Your Son to die on the cross. We recognize, Lord, that You sent Him not to judge, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. It was Your desire not to to ignore our sin, but to wash it away through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank You that as we come to You, You are not uh, ignorant of our sin, that You don't ignore our faults. You recognize them and in love You forgive them. You show us a better way through Jesus Christ to believe in Him. Father, we pray as a church that You would help us to love one another to show love to those outside of the church and to those who are even our enemies, those who go out of their way to make our lives difficult and to give us trouble. Lord, help us to love them. We pray that You would convict us as as not just here, but as the church within America and throughout the world in the ways that we have operated and acted without love. Father, forgive us. Teach us how to hold on to the truth, to proclaim righteousness, and yet to love the unrighteous. Teach us to love, we pray, Father. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.